think we probably went back and forth a few more times. A little, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I am an editor kind of yeah. by, by <laughs> training, right? And I, yeah, I edit words with like glee. Yeah. So when when music comes my <laughs> way, I I might want to like. Like, what if we did this? And no, no, but that's part of the process. Back and forth, and yeah. we're taking turns. And of course, when we're together, all of a sudden you try it in tempo, and it might be, oh, this is clearly what should happen here. And so there's a bit of a separate um, taking turns, but there's also the collaborative in the room. Does this sound better? Does this sound better? So it really is um, it was kind of a unique compositional experience for, I think, for both of us to do this. So Yeah, we, we should do it more often. Because I agree. <laughs> you, you, I mean, you did some things that I would, not have done, but right. I like, Vice I like Richter, the yeah. fact that you did it. Right? And I like how the tune ends up because I don't feel like it's all my fault. <laughs> Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman. This podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts or as a video on my YouTube. This week's episode is a special double episode with the jazz piano duo of Peter Hum and Steve Boudreaux, who have recently released their album Nonlinear Blues. Peter and Steve performed three of their original tunes for this podcast, and we've also included some of their other compositions from their respective discographies. And in terms of the conversation, it was a wide-ranging dialogue with interesting insights from their contrasting careers, Peter primarily as a music and food journalist, and Steve as an educator and performer across many different styles. Please check out the links to their recordings and websites linked in the show notes and on my website, leahroseman.com, where you can sign up for my weekly podcast newsletter and get access to sneak peeks for upcoming guests. If you're a jazz lover, I have featured a lot of wonderful jazz musicians and have well over 100 episodes to explore. Please share this episode and consider following me on your preferred social media and supporting this podcast. Everything is linked to my website and the support link is directly in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me here today, both Steve and Peter. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank We're you. glad to be here. It's such an interesting idea uh, to have a jazz piano duo because, of course, normally it's a question of venue mm. to have two pianos. So you use the word interesting, and I guess the other word could be impractical or unlikely, <laughs> right? But, but it is rewarding when we do get to pull it off. And fortunately, there are a handful of venues that can take us because they have two pianos or... I mean, if if um, if we have to, I mean, we lug have lugged keyboards around and and done it on, uh, you know, a little seventy three key matching red and black Korg SV one keyboards, and yeah. you know something's lost in the translation, but uh, you know we can still do something that we like to do and that we think people like to hear. Yeah. Now we're speaking. I'm speaking to you today, and you're in Steve's home. So yeah. this is where this musical partnership really came together, right? Yeah, although actually um, the idea from to me came because when I was in school, all of the best piano rooms were always two side-by-side -side pianos, you know, from concerto. Mm -hmm. And just for teaching, it's great to be able to play duets together. And so when I was in university, we had access to that. And uh, when I came back from Boston, there was, uh, uh, we had access to the, a900 at Carleton University at that time had two pianos in it and had done some performances there so I just tried to hook up some two piano concerts and Peter's one of the first people I called to do this with I think probably when we practiced for that it was a keyboard and a piano at home I didn't have two pianos at home but that's always been a goal to have the same kind of a you know university level of teaching setup at home that I could teach on or you know some concertos now during the pandemic I had the two grands just like in a in a 
in a university studio but since then we've downsized so you can see i have the upright in the back instead it's a little bit better for the space in the house but um it was really nice when we started playing that we could have that you know we could see each other a little bit better just sideways instead of having to kind of do sideways and back a little bit so yeah yeah back then we were playing elbow to elbow and and yeah. could sort of cast the occasional glances as needed but otherwise the sound was uh, great in this space and and we were both bringing in original music. That was, I guess, one of yeah. the uh, mandates of this uh, yeah. partnership was we would road test each other's tunes. Yeah, Eventually we started to write for each other. That first show was probably mostly jazz standards, just like most jazz piano duos would do, is just get together and play common tunes you both know. But because we did it more, we're just like, well, what have we been up to? Been writing music, let's check it out. And uh, that's kind of a fun part of it, was to bring in stuff that we know. Oh, it was kind of like, Learning each other's music is interesting because we it changes it a little bit, but we have so much in common that actually they, sometimes I think it's hard to tell who wrote what songs or who wrote what parts of the songs that we wrote together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the Venn diagram, I guess, between what Steve likes to do at the piano and, and the sounds that I like at the piano and what I'm going for, they, you know, they're, they don't overlap completely, which is what you want, I guess, but they also do overlap significantly, so we can kind of get around in that common zone and, and muck around and then do our own other things and, and see what happens. So, it, you know, we've been at it now, I guess, more intensely, oddly enough, since the beginning of the pandemic. So we are, you know, three years in, I guess, and yeah. have a little book to play from and, and mm -hmm. want to keep this thing going. Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate to be able to hear your album release concert as part of Chamberfest, which is one of the world's largest chamber music um, festivals that's not only classical, but it usually doesn't feature jazz. So what was that experience like for you playing in that theater with the two Steinways? Yeah. Well, a big part of that was um, I think that it was original music, because even though it's clearly we're jazz musicians from the way we interpret these pieces, the fact that it was all original music is uh, I think a mandate of a lot of the festivals is to feature composers and, and new works. And so mm -hmm. I really think that was very fortunate for us because I don't think any other outlet in town would have just said, oh, sure, we'll put together a two Steinway concert venue and, and let you do their album release here. It just worked out so well with Chamberfest and the, and the pianos were amazing. The room was really beautiful. Um, you know, it was a bit of a, uh, it was a, like a late Wednesday night, so it was a little bit quiet, but it was, I think it's the best show we've had so far was that, uh, that CD release thing. I really enjoyed the music we played that night, so I'm glad you got to see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it was really wonderful, and it did make me think about the way jazz is often presented is in small clubs where people aren't necessarily listening. Of course, that comes from a whole history, but you'd think now in 2023, there would be more concert venues, mm. you know, in a city like Ottawa, certainly. Just generally, there should be more concert venues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think it's interesting to see how many more places we've come across since doing this. So we did actually, last time we played was at the 10,000 Hours Rehearsal Studio in Vanier. It just opened up. They have a little room, 60 seats. And we brought out uh, Steinway Upright, similar to kind of what we're doing right now, and just did their kind of the soft launch of their rehearsal studio. We played a couple songs for the welcoming everybody party and uh, again it's just like there's another nice place that we can play and, and it gets smaller is nice because then you don't have the pressure of of having to sell a whole lot of tickets for original music that's basically uh you know i guess more of a niche niche 
audience than what you would get if it was uh you know singer songwriter original music so but yeah. at the risk of repeating myself uh and while still trying to respond to your question leia uh we, we have done this like for uh you know listen audiences are i guess what we would call in the jazz world like listening audiences like and we've done that both uh in in the venue where you saw us but also like in backyards when that's the only place yeah, that's, happened yeah, during the that's pandemic. Right. And, and that was kind of lovely you know to play with like birds singing in the background yeah. and you know conversely we've played um in those more conventional jazz situations where there is some you know uh, a certain amount of kind of muttering gone going on in the background and the clinking of glasses and and honestly you know i came up doing that and i'm in a way more comfortable doing that than when you know people's full attention are, are on yeah on, on what i'm doing sometimes it's nice to know that uh that a little bit of the pressure's off because there's, yeah. there's a little distraction going on i like that too maybe, maybe the hardest thing actually is doing what we just did which is just playing for cameras yeah so i'm still yeah, not that's the hardest that. one yeah even though you know we've done a bit of that like from Southminster United. Oh yeah, that's it. But there, there's an audience, so you can just focus on the people in the room at Southminster, not. Th and then later, you're like, oh yeah, look, that's uh, that was on the internet. That version of us playing those songs. You, but if you were thinking about it the whole time, you'd just be like, oh, let's go back and do that take again. So for today, we just wanted to just play everything once for you, like spontaneously, and not go back and try to come up with multiple takes of our favorite things for that reason. That you you've got better yeah. to do than to yeah. choose between takes. Yeah, and our live live. Pretend it's a live show for just you. <laughs> At this point, my listeners will be wondering, what are they talking about? We haven't heard music yet. So okay. let's just say full disclosure. I suggested, hey, why don't you play music first, record it, and then we'll get into the conversation. And I'm going to edit in the three selections you performed for me solo. <laughs> so the first tune, Irreversibly, is by Steve. Can you speak to that tune? Sure. Um, I wrote this piece kind of based on... Um, you know, I think this may be a harmonic first song. I'm always thinking about whether I wrote the melody first or the rhythm or the harmony. This one was very much came out of the harmony and, uh, you know, some colors that I like that hadn't been applied to that harmony. And the title irreversibly is I have a friend who used that word in the lyrics of one of her songs. And uh, I just thought it was a really interesting word that described kind of a lot of changing. And... Um, when I first played it uh, for a friend of mine and I told him the title was irreversible, this is kind of a, a grammar nerd. He said, is that a word or is irrevocably the correct word? I think, is there ever a certain situation where you would say irreversibly instead of irrevocably? And uh, since then, I think that's, that has changed. It's definitely, I've heard irreversibly multiple places. It's like, it's a real word for sure. I, I can't use that. <laughs> I can't use that, that banter as an excuse anymore. It's like, it's a good word and I like it a lot. That's where the title comes from.
Steve, to talk about your weekly YouTube concerts that you continue to do. Sure. Um, yeah, this is something, again, that came out of two things. One, it came out of not having a lot of opportunities to perform during the pandemic and just knowing that if I didn't, I would uh, I would lose uh, some of the, the technique I need just by not having enough time. And um, But also, there's something different that happens, and it's what we were just talking about with recording for cameras. Um, uh, I've kind of discovered that the more you do something, the you know the less of an effect it has on you, right? So uh, I know we have a, a, a friend who I think records every time he performs and listens to it the next day, and like that's a bit too much for me to do. I, I can't handle that much of myself in every day, but um, but I did think that if I performed some consistent thing like that every week, it would simulate a little bit what it's like to live in a bigger town where I would be gigging more. So I kept doing it after the things started opening up. Now I'm busier than I, I think I'm almost as busy, if not more busy than I was before the pandemic. But that Monday afternoon, I picked a time where I usually would be practicing. And now that's my performance practice time. I, I do anywhere from half an hour to an hour, depending on what stuff I'm working on. Just this last Monday, I did four songs of Carla Blaze because she passed away last week. And, um, but often I'll just do a set of jazz music that I'm working on for, or I'll, I'll even play our originals, things that we're working on. If we have a show coming up, I'll practice those. And it's just performance practice. Cause often when I sit here and there, and there's nobody watching, I'll just work on the hard bits or I'll, you know, practicing is, is, uh, doesn't sound as nice as performing. So it's nice to make myself come up with a final product. So that's what that's, that's where that comes from. Yeah. And a lot of people tune in. And so people can watch those for free on YouTube or support yep. you on your Patreon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I mostly it's just on YouTube and I keep them up. So there's always one there. So at the end of the week, mm -hmm. when I do the new one, then I the old one goes behind the Patreon. You could still watch it if you're a Patreon subscriber. But generally, it's on my YouTube channel at one o'clock every Monday. Um, I think it's Steve Boudreaux music is everything, the YouTube and the Patreon and the website. But mm -hmm. if you Google it, you'll find it. I don't, that's the easiest way to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, of course, all your links will be in the yeah. show notes. Oh, great, with this perfect. Episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was wondering about that because I'd listened to your concert last week and I thought, oh, he must take down the old ones, but I guess they're available. Yeah, they're still on the Patreon if you if okay. you missed one. So, and they're searchable too. So if you're like, oh, did he ever play? Because at this point I've done every Monk tune. So I sometimes think, oh, I wonder how that one sounded. Maybe there's like three or four I haven't done yet. But if I can, I can go back and theoretically cobble together the whole Thelonious Monk library from the last two and a half years of Mondays. So it's okay. like it's it's way too much of me. If you if you want to hear more of me, sure. But I think it's too much. Maybe my mom's listened to the whole thing. I don't know anybody else that's gone through the whole catalog of everything I've played. So <laughs> you know. You I don't think of it as too much. I mean, I I, <laughs> I tune in now and again. Yeah. Because I'm usually 
doing my day job thing yeah. Monday afternoons and you know sometimes there's a bit of a lull and I can go check out what he's doing right <laughs> so that's good but I I like the idea that you've uh, you know done the entire canon of monk tunes yeah. over time that seems like a real um like good way towards, yeah, yeah. of chipping away at like a you know yeah. a big rock over over time yeah. I'm, I'm it's a it's a, there's 74 tunes 74 tunes by Thelonious Monk and uh wow. But you know, I I only do like one or two a week, and but it's been a couple of years now. You know, twenty twenty three. Yeah, it's been. I started the January of twenty twenty one, doing all of the, least live stream and the Patreon posting and stuff. So that's been, almost, uh, almost two full years, I guess. Mm -hmm. That means a hundred concerts, fifty two weeks times two. So but but can I I just want to come back if I can, Leah, to this idea of, of recording all of monk's music which to me is is uh, okay some kind of you know very admirable bucket list achievement and maybe you know in the, in the classical realm uh great artists are are more purposeful and diligent and they're going to do all of the uh, beethoven sonatas or something like that mm. um but i think maybe we're less disciplined in in the jazz frame, or at least, you know, amongst the jazz people that I know. And, and uh, I really applaud Steve, I guess, for, yeah. for, uh, you know, tackling that, that kind of mm -hmm. tremendous set of, uh, uh, monks music. I do think in jazz, there's less things like that, where there's a finite number to like, I remember when I was in, in Boston, they were doing the entire Haydn sonatas, uh, all of his piano sonatas. And I remember we talked about it and they're like, the poster was uh, something like, Nobody knows how many sonatas by Haydn they are, and we're going to play all of them. It's like, well, that's a conflict, right? Like, if you don't know how many. And so with a lot of jazz artists, people are... Like, at one point, I was learning a lot of Herbie Nichols compositions, and then somebody pointed out that, oh, here there's a tune of his on that record. And so there's no real definitive catalog of all of his music out there. But with Monk, um, the, there's a... Steve Gardin is a great guitar player from New York, cataloged. He, I think he must have really meticulously gone through it to do this. So we have this great resource, and you will see other jazz musicians have done complete monk. Yeah. The complete monk. It's kind of one of those things like the complete Beethoven sonatas or something. Mm -hmm. It's one of the ones. So that's the Frank you know, Kimber one. Frank Kimber did my in, favorite one. The Frank Kimber in. did. It's called uh, Monk's Dreams. Um, and there's a couple others too. And there's, there's a Dutch free jazz oh. one. That's pretty, uh, I can't remember the guy's name right now. So Peter, you made reference to your day job. So you're well known as a journalist. Uh, we can talk about the different beats you've covered. I don't know if we'll have time for all of that, but certainly as a music jazz journalist and as a food critic. So I definitely want to talk to you about that. I know one of the memorable articles you wrote was with about Herbie Hancock. Yes. And you had a yes. very memorable um, personal interview with him. Do you want to speak to that experience? Well, uh, I guess I could just say that since Herbie Hancock has been, you know, probably one of my top two or three heroes musically since I was... Yeah, a teenager getting to meet him uh, in it was uh, 2000, I believe, and I actually flew from Ottawa to San Francisco to do this interview back in the days when uh, uh, newspapers would be willing to do that kind of uh, expensive enterprise. Uh, so I, I was able to uh, interview him in person, which, first of all, you know, is incredible. And then he was gracious enough to talked to me about his life and his music for a full 90 minutes, which yielded a uh, 
story that uh, was on the order of about 6,000 words or something like that, uh, because the newspaper hadn't really had much uh, coverage of Herbie Hancock over the years, because I don't think he'd played under his own name until uh, that year, 2000. Hmm. So, um, uh, I mean, what can I say? He was like a, a fantastic person, you know, better and, and more, more, uh, charming and uh, personable than I had could could have hoped for. Uh, he just seemed really down to earth. And uh, it's it's always fantastic when uh, you can have that kind of interaction with someone that you admired for so long. Mm -hmm. One of the quotes of his in that article was, uh, he said, all the fun is when you go outside the comfort zone. And I was wondering if you could reflect on that. I was thinking back to the days like when you did your master's at McGill in English, but you were fully into the jazz scene and playing and meeting all these people and definitely going out your out of your comfort zone, right? Hmm. Well, uh, I'd like to say that I, I can relate to what Herbie's saying. Uh, to some degree, that's true, but I'd also say that Herbie is probably a more courageous musician than I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with, uh, I certainly, I mean, there are moments, certainly, when we can get out there. And that that's, I find, in my own practice, whether I'm playing with Steve or with my own bands, which can be as large as six people, that it's kind of in that safe social situation where you're making music with people with the assistance of people and, and with the inspiration of your, your friends, frankly, that you can get out there and, and hopefully explore and, and open that door into that uh, kind of uh, discomfort zone that, that Herbie's talking about, mm -hmm. I think. I mean, he, he was doing that big time, especially in the 1960s, I think, when uh, that band that Miles Davis had with him uh, playing piano and Wayne Schroeder playing saxophone and Ron Carter playing bass and Tony Williams on drums. I mean, they were full on, you know, 24-7 in that uh, blissful state of, of uh, uncomfortable exploration. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, uh, I think I probably need more things going on to kind of tether my music making too. But it is, I guess, the things that happen differently over successive iterations of the songs that make me feel like, yes, I'm being to some degree, you know, creative or imaginative or trying to get beyond what I've done before. Hi, just a short break from the episode, which I hope you're enjoying so far. If you want to check out over 100 episodes you may have missed, in addition to your podcast player or YouTube, I have an extensive website, leahroseman.com, with show notes, transcripts, the complete catalogue of episodes, and you can sign up there for my weekly newsletter to get access to sneak peeks of upcoming guests. Please do share your favourite episodes with your friends, follow me on social media, and share my posts. And if you can spare a few dollars to help support the series, that would be amazing, and you can find that link in the show notes. I'm an independent podcaster, and I really do need the help of my listeners. Now back to the episode. Now, Peter, it might we didn't talk before if you might want to share clips from previous albums. I was thinking your your first album, A Boy's Journey, your debut album, like the the uh, title track is such a beautiful ballad and it's dedicated to your dad, I believe. Yes, that's right. Uh, I mean, you're uh, making me reflect fondly about kind of my first 
a more serious effort to make music to document my own compositions. So that goes mm -hmm. back to, I think, 2008, um, when that recording took place. Uh, and I think that really followed uh, after uh, the passing of my father. It was following his passing that I, I was thinking more about uh, issues like what's my legacy or what do I want, you know, the people I know to remember me uh, with and, and music uh, was part of that, certainly. Mm -hmm. And so making a record came from that. And uh, there was this song that I'd written about my father, which oddly enough is called A Boy's Journey, but it refers to him being born in Ottawa in uh, the early 1920s, but then going back to China in the late 1920s and then coming back to Canada in the uh, 1930s, like about mm -hmm. 10 years after. So that um, that's the journey that he took, which was something that unfortunately I never really spoke to him enough about, but it, it was enough of a, a feat, I guess, because it, it involved, you know, uh, crossing the country by train and then crossing the ocean by boat and then, you know, being on a train again and then doing the whole thing in reverse. So I just thought of like a small child sort of going halfway around the world, you know, in back in those days. and. And I thought of my father, who I knew only as an adult, and then I wrote that piece. Mm -hmm. um, but what I would say, just as a postscript to that, is uh, I'm happy to reflect on that, but I also feel like uh, in the 15 years that it's been since I did that recording and since I grew more serious about music, so that's like really only in my 40s that I, I think I became more committed to trying to develop music of my own. Mm -hmm. um, that I, I've actually like covered a lot of ground in, in 15 years. So mm -hmm. I, I almost feel like you're making me, sorry, you are asking me to talk about juvenilia. About <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> so, so. Um, yeah, look, career retrospective, it's a little bit of a, like, a lot of musicians don't like to listen to their old records and uh, because we're thinking about the next one, but. Uh... That's, that's a good that's story exactly, with that. You know, that is exactly story. right. Yeah. Yeah, that's an incredible story about your dad. Do you know what motivated him to go back to China? Oh, I, I know exactly. It was family circumstances. His mother passed away and then uh, some members of the family moved back to China and, and lived there for a while. And my grandfather uh, remarried. But that could you could you he could only remarry by meeting someone back in the village rather than in downtown Ottawa where they live mm. so that that's that was the circumstances yeah I know that Ch uh, Canada didn't allow Chinese women to immigrate here for a long time I don't know when that changed yeah I mean the, the, those would have been the issues with the exclusion act and, and yeah things like that I mean it, it took Canadians serving in um, the Canadian Army I guess during World War two to kind of uh, help help those people press for for their rights right mm -hmm. or equality mm -hmm. Steve you're a jazz educator but you also teach piano you teach different styles popular music classical yeah yeah I well I you know the thing that I you the reason that I, I kind of have that broad line in my bio is because a lot of people know me from my playing 
but I, I'd say almost a larger portion of people know me because I accompany vocal students a lot. And I have mm -hmm. since I was, you know, a teenager and my sisters took singing lessons and I started playing okay. for them. Um, so it's been, you know, the decades of doing that now, including I have kids that I played for who have been on Broadway for 15 years now and uh, other ones who've, you know, gone off and have recording careers in television and movies and they just when they were in Ottawa taking singing lessons I played for their conservatory exams or for their mm -hmm. Kiwanis Music Festival and uh, and for that what I like about it is the broad styles that I get to play from so you know even though it doesn't seem like I mean you know I just finished this the operatic showcase last weekend for one of the teachers I work with and which included a large 20-minute portion of Tosca and uh, and it's like like oh you know it, Puccini, how's the, you know, does that interest you? And it's like, of course, it's good music, and good music is always worth learning and digging into. And in the end, it's the same the same skills that I bring to jazz. It's listening and and interpretation, and you know what what do I want to do? What what do I think is the best sounding way to approach this music? And so I think of it as all music. So when you say you play jazz and teach classical and and all that, really that. It's like I think of it as just the big umbrella of music, and uh, especially this instrument, the piano. I try to factor in anything. I don't. I don't want to disclude <laughs> any style or part of the history of this instrument that's been uh, performed from my interests. And you've um, delved a little bit into Hindustani music. Oh yeah, and that isn't even that's not piano at all, right? So <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was a student at Carleton University for my undergrad, and at that time, this great uh, vocalist moved here from France, and he moved here because he had a PhD in physics and was bilingual in English and French, but he was known as a Hindustani classical singer. He had toured with Ravi Shankar, and so the Indian High Commission, uh, I think through Carleton University, set up that he could teach a course there as an introduction to that music, and I was in the first class that among I think there was six people in this class and it was I was senior finishing university and it was offered as a fourth year course and uh, it immediately struck me to be closer to jazz than a lot of the other courses I'd taken because it was cyclical they would improvise over a structure maybe a 12 beat structure instead of a 32 bar structure mm -hmm. but then the the sophistication of how they approach melodic improvisation and the different uh, approaches which were completely by ear if everything that's written down, it was not as easy to follow as the stuff that was taught by word of mouth. And that's why it's a thousands of years old um, oral tradition um, that I really got into that. I ended up studying with, I'm talking about Vinay Pide. He's a singer in Ottawa. I just played for his 70th birthday at the Shankman Center last year. And, um, uh, and I studied privately with him for a while. And I've been kind of playing with him whenever he has some kind of concert where He's looking to put something together. I even I actually accompanied one of his students on harmonium at Canterbury last year for their grade eleven recital, doing a classical piece, and mm -hmm. uh, I love it. It's all music. It goes to, it goes to the same point. It's, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, that's a lot of the point of this podcast. So yeah, it's really really great. Now the second tune we're going to put in now, nonlinear blues, is the title track of your album. <laughs> so Peter, you wrote this tune, right? I did write this tune, although the funny thing about this tune is that it's been recorded twice, but the first recording was by Steve in a solo piano situation. So I guess that, that speaks to, well, our, our compatibility, <laughs> I guess. I figured 
when Steve asked me, could you record this tune? I said, sure. And that was somewhere in early pandemic days. And then mm -hmm. we, when we got around to recording our own duo, then, uh, of course this piece remained in the repertoire. Although I think, I mean, this is one of the interesting things between us is that we will, I think left to our own devices, we find different tempos for tunes. So in fact, Steve's version of- I think mine's slower, right? Is- It's slower? Significantly slower. I think, I think I got the chart, we played it maybe, and then I put it away for a while. So when I went to record it, I was thinking bluesier maybe because the title is nonlinear blues. And and I, I know now where he's coming from, but at the time it's just lockdown. It's just me kind of playing around with stuff. And I ended up, maybe I was feeling more melancholic and felt like doing it slower, but it ended up uh, then having to be an adjustment to to go back to the other, the original way of doing, which we had played before, but it's just a different thing. I think that's part of it too, is that if you, every time you do a tune, you bring a fresh outlook based on where you are to it. So it kind of worked out well, I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree about that. And uh, I mean, just to close the loop with respect to that tune and the title of that tune, it was written in, I think the summer of early 2020, summer of 2020, right? So the first pandemic summer, and life was feeling kind of rather disjointed at that time, which I guess gave me that word nonlinear. And to me, at least some of the harmony kind of leaps and moves around in kind of a funny way. Mm -hmm. I guess I didn't want to just call the tune nonlinear. So I, I called it a blues, even though it is almost in no way a blues. <laughs> it's really stretching things to say that it's a blues. But I did think that we had the blues about yeah, living. Yeah, we had the nonlinear blues. We had the blues about the title, yeah. At that time.
Thanks so much for, for sharing that. I was, I was just thinking, you know, before you guys were recording this earlier, there was some confusion, like Steve said, oh yeah, I have a chart slightly different harmonization or something. Probably from that, yeah, I probably pulled out the chart yeah. from, the, from the solo album, not from the two, the duo concert, yeah. That's probably what. Now for memorizing standards, I think it was when I interviewed Mark Ferguson, another uh, jazz pianist, he said definitely lyrics are so helpful with mm -hmm. standards to help you remember. But you guys play actually mostly not with vocalists and not mostly standard. So how does that work for, for if you want to take turns talking about memorizing charts and how that works or how much you depend on lead sheets? Yeah, um, well, how, would I, how about I start there? Because I kind of realized this at one point I was learning some Charlie Parker music, you know, classic mm -hmm. jazz staples. And there are lyrics that people have set to those tunes. And I do find that can be a fast track if you if you have the lyrics. But I still mm -hmm. think that learning the melody vocally is a really good kind of way to internalize anything is if you can mm -hmm. if you can kind of remember what it sounds like vocally it all it gives you the thing so i have a friend who he always writes nonsense lyrics to every instrument okay. tune to learn them faster i remember i can't remember he had the, the silliest lyrics to uh um another bebop tune right and i can't remember something about something about going for food i think but ever since he i heard him singing that one i i knew the melody so it is really helpful to have like any kind of anything else to get your memory to grab onto it in fact a lot of memory specialists i think they say that like the more the more ridiculous an approach you take the more memorable it'll be right if it's just like kind of vanilla then you're gonna have a harder time committing to it so for me that's a big part of it but i also think that memorizing a harmony structure is the same for a vocal standard as it is for this is you have to kind of hear how the bass and the harmony is moving and internalize that and then you could also figure out how the melody fits with that so just i guess with classical music it's similar too you're not just putting everything 
in micro in a row, you're also looking at the macro and, and saying what's happening big picture and then filling in details and that kind of thing. So that's, that's my, I guess that's my educator approach to it. Not that that's necessarily how I always do it, but uh, do you want to like speak to how you learn tunes? <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I would say, uh, uh, in the way that a, a, um, uh, an amateur pianist who wishes that he could learn them in a more thoughtful manner, learns tunes. Um, I mean, I take advantage, I guess, of the fact that in the jazz world, we can be a little more lenient about learning, uh, other people's music and even our own music. I mean, I, I have most of my tunes probably, uh, you know, 85 or 90%. It's kind of all there and I can move around quite flexibly within my own material if, if I've refreshed my memory before the gig or something like that. But at the same time, I'm still going to have uh, sheet music on the piano just uh, you know, like a security blanket or something like that, or, or a last resort if needed. Uh, when it's come to learning tunes by uh, Steve, or by, uh, I recently played a, a gig with a friend of mine who's a fantastic trumpeter and a composer, David Smith, mm -hmm. uh, who who writes great music, and he writes them, I guess, in what is now an old-fashioned way, by hand. <laughs> like in, in script on, on sheet music rather than, uh, you know, using notation software. So uh, sometimes because literally the font's too small for my uh, weakened eyesight, I will I will just copy out the music again. So that that's, that's, a good that's my it. thing to learn other people's music is to write it out and write it out uh, sometimes in a way that's more intelligible for myself. And then... Uh, learning it may not be the same as memorizing it for me learning it will just mean that i can get to as as a state where i can again maneuver through the music and and do things to it mm -hmm. using that kind of cheat sheet as my my point of reference okay and when you guys are playing together how much are you working out beforehand in terms of you know take taking turns with solos or how you're passing things back and forth it may it may sound like to some people it might sound like an insufficient amount <laughs> well sometimes we yeah i think because we've recorded these pieces now we've kind of settled on oh i'm playing the melody for these portions but uh uh off the cuff so other things happen you know it's like if i all of a sudden am playing chords and they feel really good and i don't want to leave playing chords peter can hear that and we'll, we'll jump in and play a melody and uh, so I, I do think it's a it's a constant back and forth that can be a little scary because there are moments where we both are waiting for the other one to do something and then we both do it at the same time and, and we have to go, you know, it's like a little bit of that, you know, you're walking down the street and somebody's coming towards you and you, you both dodge the same way. But over time now, that doesn't, that happens less and less and we can kind of hear where the other one's going and, and play. And I even find that in most bands where, you know, it's trumpet solo or a saxophone solo where you know there's a certain amount of politeness but there's also a certain amount of just intuiting what the right move is and going for it and i think that's a big part of improvising mm -hmm. as well so that's a something that i think has gradually happened more and more i think sometimes the things that you think of as planned aren't planned and the things that are planned maybe don't come across as something that that strikes you that way you know so mm -hmm. it could often be the opposite which i like <laughs> yeah the best kind of uh, performances. 
I think we are both kind of content in terms of our disposition with, with like letting the chips yeah. fall where they may. So, uh, you know, some things are kind of have, have, uh, solidified over time in terms of how some of these pieces are performed, but you know, a departure isn't a bad thing at all. If we can kind of figure out how to make the departure work. Yeah. You know, it could be, it could be like, again, like a question of tempos, for example, right? Like yeah. I, I do like changing the tempos of the tunes. I even think the way we played today for this, these performances, there were some things that happened that we'd never done before that I was quite happy with, even though usually in a situation like this, we tend to go to the, the safe place because we know we're recording and all that. There were a couple of moments, I think in each tune, actually in all three tunes, something happened that I was like, oh, we're doing something cool in the ending here or so that's that to me that's that's why it's worth doing is that you could find yes. those things every time yeah. yes i don't think we'd want it to be too impeccable yeah <laughs> if i can put it that way and we if it gets a little bit kind of murky or unclear if we can find our footing or if we're, we're going into some new situation or finding some new sounds then you know yeah, that's mission that's accomplished good. i think yeah. well before we get to the the third tune uh steve i thought it might be fun for people you have a group Fate 8. Oh, yeah. <laughs> game console music. Yeah, we just played last night, actually. We have a monthly residency now at House of Targ, which is this cool bar in Ottawa that was opened by friends that used to hang out at the Manx Pub, a legendary Ottawa watering hole. And um, they just all came together. And I think because there's so many owners sharing the responsibilities, they were able to make this kind of magical thing happen that even withstood the pandemic. It's a pinball arcade with somebody's grandmother's pierogi recipe. So they serve pierogies for food. They have a lot of punk bands play there on the weekends. They also have like, I think kind of like new age eighties music and DJs some nights, uh, all ages, family days on Sundays and things. And so we've convinced them over the years, we've played on and off a couple times a year for various functions they have as a kind of a game centric place. We've played these jazz versions of video game tunes but we now just as in september are doing a monthly the last wednesday of every month we're doing a full night of this band uh fate bit looks like f8 dash bit and we just as a result started all the social media things there should be an instagram and a uh a facebook page and all those things should be out there now if you go looking for them um and the, the, what it is is kind of actually this i was thinking about this the other day it's guitar piano bass drums but we end up getting a lot into the technology because that's part of it is it's electric music uh and the band that i've been listening to that closely resembles it is actually the tony williams lifetime band i was listening to some of their stuff and it's like uh because there's a lot of like roads and then holdsworth outer space guitar playing and uh you know we've we have a new guitar player now ben demillo uh, replaced Alex Moxon when he moved uh, mm. out west. Um, but they both bring in kind of guitar, electric guitar stuff that you wouldn't usually hear in a traditional jazz band. You hear effects pedals and distortion and things. And so that's kind of pushed me to do some things with synthesizers and, and introduce that. And Jake, the bass player, has started bringing in a pedal board. And every once in a while, he'll come, there'll be a sound that is unusual. And uh, what is fun about that band is usually in that style of music, everything is very rehearsed because the music is so ingrained in people's subconscious mm -hmm. from having heard, you know, 24 bars loop for 10 hours. You're going to, if you play these games when you're a kid, you just kind of, they get ingrained in there in this, this way that kind of makes them um, like instant nostalgia for anybody who hears them. But for us, the fun thing is jazz musicians is not to do it the same way every time. So unlike most of the other video game music projects out there, 
we're going to be doing a different tempo, like all the things we just talked with our music, or all of a sudden we'll do a soft version or a loud version and the tempo will be different or the groove will be different. And, um, and I remember when we started, somebody said, so, I mean, is that all you play? There's video game songs. I think last night people in the audience called out 10 video games that we not just didn't play tunes from, but had never heard of. And we're like, all right, write them down, go check out this new music. And have, do you know anything from this? And Michelle's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. It sounds like you're not speaking English because he was saying the game was some really complicated name game, but I guess the music is great, you know? And then there's, I was like, how about Pictionary for the Nintendo? And it's like, I encourage you to go look up Pictionary for the Nintendo. It is bananas music. And I think they, they knew that that's the unofficially, the hardest song for the Nintendo canon is Pictionary theme song okay. from the video game Pictionary. So we'll grant it. We'll have to play that someday, but that's like learning uh, the flight of the bumblebee or something. So anyway, it's a fun thing. And I encourage you to check it out because it's the kind of the, the prog rock instrumental version of, of yeah. kind of niche. Yeah. I, I heard some of your videos that you've posted online, mm -hmm. uh, like live. Would we be able to use audio clips of any of that? Do you want to ask your... Yeah. Fans? Well, the neat thing is with this residency, we've been able to record every night that we play there. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping over time we'll get some things we can release, some live audio that we can release. But we definitely have clips. I don't know if we have a full take of anything, but yeah, you can share a video. Awesome. Thanks. Great. Peter, so when I started reading your, your restaurant reviews, I thought, how did he get this great gig? Like, <laughs> talk about a dream job. It is a dream job. But I would also say, as I've said to other people who make comments like yours, is that I have these other duties too, and those are also like jobs unto themselves. So it feels mm -hmm. like I have multiple jobs, or at least wear, wear kind of more hats that, than, uh, than I would like in my yeah. uh yeah what is it like do you do court reporting like last year right <laughs> so many things so many different you know not as glamorous yeah i i 
do what's needed, I guess. I mean, yeah. I've been a I've been a full time journalist for 33 years here at the Ottawa Citizen, my hometown newspaper. Mm -hmm. So it, it, you know, life couldn't have turned out better for me in a professional sense. And, you know, uh, as you noted, I, I got to spend 90 minutes with Herbie Hancock, you know, talking to him and, and you know, a multitude of other musical heroes and, and peers, you know, I've got to meet and know and listen to because you know, I assigned myself that work when, when I could do that. Uh, on the restaurant side of things, I mean, not to derail the podcast, it's something that uh, I came into because I was previously the editor of my predecessor. And then it is something that, that I kind of had in my background. I mean, my father, who we spoke of, had a restaurant. I worked in a restaurant when I was in high school. And, you know, there are other members of my extended family that had restaurants. I mean, that's very common in the Chinese Canadian experience, but, you know, I came to be kind of uh, very food curious and eventually I was asked after being a substitute restaurant critic to become the full-time restaurant critic. And that's, that's several days a week worth of work, but then there are other, other things that need to get done. So I do those things too. Mm -hmm. I remember reading a number of years ago, um, in terms of the Chinese Canadian food experience, how the a lot of these early immigrants, you know, they weren't trained cooks or anything, but they started restaurants in all towns all across, and then they would share recipes, like they would mail each other because they had to work with unfamiliar ingredients. Did you run across any of this history? Well, you know that that sounds about right, based on you know the the restaurant kitchen that I, you know, spent a lot of time in. In, in the 1970s when I was growing up, you know, and, and, you know, it was a case where my father and my, well, more so my uncle, who was his partner, you know, would bring over relatives from Hong Kong who, you know, I don't know if they worked as, as cooks there, but they could man a walk, you know, for hours and hours and hours and, and, and crank out that food. And, you know, I don't know who, whether there was even like a head chef or, you know, a keeper of recipes, but it's just something that got done and was standardized over over the years in, in my father's restaurant, which was open for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. I You wrote an article, I maybe it was a year ago, it was, it was like an in-depth look at um, the struggles of substance abuse among restaurant workers. Mm. Yes, yes, I did. I mean, that was a, a topic that I guess has been... Uh, you know, even to some degree romanticized, I suppose, in the industry that it's it's mm. thought that they're all kind of, you know, uh, night owl rebels and, uh, you know, uh, you know, almost like... You mean almost like jazz musicians, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean, they have a nocturnal life. They they work and then yeah. their downtime could be in, in like, you know, you could be rubbing shoulders at, with jazz musicians at, at you know late night haunts and stuff like that and then sleeping in and getting up at noon or one o'clock and, and living that kind of uh, bohemian life so yeah one of the bad aspects of that is that it it, it makes it very easy to fall into substance abuse mm -hmm. you know uh, for, you know there's there's alcohol where you work you know and you can you can have at it when you're off or sometimes even when you are on but it's it's yeah. uh yeah, it, it, it was something that uh, I was very fortunate because I got a lot of first-hand accounts of what it was like to have have lived your life that way, I guess, before you 
got sober and fixed things. So that that was uh, uh, a meaningful assignment that I I took on last year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really strong piece, and um, yeah, I just it really it really stayed with me. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that that's nice of you to say. Thank you. If we could talk about the third piece uh, that you played, bursting, what's it called? Bursting the bubble. Mm -hmm. So is that a reference to the pandemic bubble? Yes. Yes, for sure. Because it was probably, Peter's probably one of the first people I saw when we were allowed to um, expand our bubbles, you know, of, of who we were seeing. And I guess that, you know, we are all these conversations of like, what's your bubble? Who are you, who is in you? Just, you know, just if, so you could see who had interacted with who and a lot of people were really careful about that right like okay well we can see these people as long as they don't see these these people and and you know and so that, that's part of it was that we were getting together and it was the first uh, i think we were wearing masks in this house to do to get together and play and making sure we we're distance i may have even had plexiglass you know we had all kinds of temporary rules that we went through um but the the real idea there was that we wanted to try to write something together that collaboratively in this time when we were, you know, so isolated. And so to burst the bubble was to work together, you know, and to, to create together. And I think Peter came up with the initial little introduction and then, uh, and then I did a bunch on my own and, and sent it back. And then he, he tried to like, he glossed it up a little bit. Like he, he kind of cleaned up the edges. I'd say he ironed out the seams a little bit. And I think we probably went back and forth a few more times. A little, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I am an editor kind of yeah. by, by <laughs> training, right? And I, yeah, I edit words with like glee. Yeah. So when when music comes my <laughs> way, I I might want to like, like, what if we did this? And no, no, but that's part of the process, back and forth, and yeah. we're taking turns. And of course, when we're together, all of a sudden you try it in tempo, and it might be, oh, this is clearly what should happen here. And so there's a bit of a separate. Um, taking turns, but there's also the collaborative in the room. Does this sound better? Does this sound better? So it really is, um, it was kind of a unique compositional experience for, I think for both of us to do this. So yeah, we, we should do it more often. Because I agree. <laughs> you, you, I mean, you did some things that I would not have done, but I, I like, vice versa, I like yeah. the fact that you did it. And right? I like how the tune ends up because I don't feel like it's all my fault. <laughs> I like the tune better because I don't feel like I, I don't feel as responsible for its success or failure, so it actually makes me like it more because it feels like uh, it feels like um, I created something, but it also is I, I can appreciate it more because it's not just self, uh, you know, adulation <laughs> mm -hmm. to say I like that too. But I think yeah, you know, I mean, coming back to the title, we were able to play that for people in one of those early outdoor concert yeah. where you know people brought their own lawn chairs but they had to make sure that they were in bubbles of yeah you could yeah even though they were in my backyard yeah that we so that was a bubble almost bursting too people wearing masks outside but coming in carefully so nobody ever was within a certain range of each other that was the first concert i think i did in post march 2020 was and it was probably august of 2020 yeah i, I think that's when right I did it. Yeah. yeah there would have been a good yeah things were starting to relax right I mean, even just doing that was probably uh, carefully strategized, not just on our part, but like, what are the rules? You know, they change so often. So, yeah. I mean, the the the, the title is facetious, you know, at least minutely so, but it really does like point to a time when we were all able to uh, realize just like how significant making music and listening yeah. to music 
in a social situation was because we were deprived of that for yeah. mm. a batch of months. I mean, maybe we've forgotten and, and we are, that's one of the downsides of being, you know, quote, back to normal. Quote, unquote. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> we, we learned something at that time yeah. about music and, and yeah. what it meant to us. To us. Yeah. Bursting the Bubble, which is co-written by both of us. So.
Now, right before the lockdowns, Peter, you were touring with your new album, the Ordinary Heroes, yeah, your 2020 right. album. Yes, yes. So, yes, we were on the road during the first week and, and the second week, and we were supposed to be on tour like the third week of March. Or, yeah, we were supposed to be in the Maritimes in the second half of March. But, of course, you know, the curtain came down very uh, abruptly, I think, uh, what is March 15th was, I think, a Sunday, and we played a gig on March 14th, and, and some people said that was ill-advised. I think we played the Rex on March uh, 10th and 11th in Toronto, and then we played in Waterloo on the 14th. And I just remember that that feeling of, of things shutting down, uh, you know, when I was doing one of my most favorite things, it was mm. kind of especially poignant to have mm. have have that all you know that that's you know where I was during you know the the, the COVID curtain coming down mm -hmm. uh, but you know we recovered I guess in the sense that the the uh, the tour of the Maritimes that was supposed to happen in spring 2020 eventually happened I think two years later so people were nice enough to honor their invitations and and uh you know, maybe the music was a little better for it, for it having, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of matured, I guess, uh, over those mm -hmm. two years. And Peter, that album, Ordinary Heroes, I mean, it's sort of your intersection of your work as a journalist and as a musician. Do you want to speak to it briefly and maybe we could include a clip from it? Sure. Well, um, well, I'll, I'll just say that with respect to that album, uh, I mean, it has... Uh, sort of an un unlikely inspiration, which was the uh, 2016 election of Donald Trump as the U.S. president. And I think, like a lot of people, uh, you know, I, I kind of have to come out now and, and state my politics. I was, like, aghast at that happening, and I felt kind of fearful and, and somewhat kind of powerless about what, you know, might happen as a result of the mm. politics changing in the way that it did in the U.S. So... I think my uh, equivalent of kind of political protest or political action was to write songs that, uh, for me anyway, even though they're instrumental compositions, uh, took their inspiration or took their titles from notions that I guess fall on the progressive side of politics. So I, I don't know if that's clear. And then the idea of Ordinary Heroes, I guess, it actually comes from a quotation from George Takei, if I'm saying that correctly, George Takei, Takei, mm -hmm. um, who spoke of the people who uh, gave support and comfort to interned Japanese Americans during the Second World War. He's, he spoke of those helpers as as being ordinary heroes mm -hmm. which i guess now in this kind of marvel yeah. uh, cinematic universe age we, we think of superheroes so i was trying to borrow from george and, and refer to us all being ordinary heroes mm -hmm. i guess having an impact on mm -hmm. on other people's lives and, and society so that that's where it comes from i guess you know I, I think maybe the tune spare hearts is a nice one to play and and I guess it's a pun of sorts on spare parts, but I, I meant spare hearts in the sense that we should all have kind of more heart and and kind of concern for each other and, and resilience. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. So that, that's what I, I meant with that title and, and the tune itself is, is it's one that I still really like to play and I played in trio settings or I played in duos. We've probably played it in some of our concerts mm -hmm. and you know it lives as a as a sextet piece with two uh you know two horns and a guitar all everyone going at it and, and loud drums. So uh, you know I think that, that tune I'm proud of.
Thanks so much for sharing that. Oh, I'm glad to. Thanks for asking. Now, uh, Steve, we talked a little bit about Thelonious Monk and playing all his music. You've also done a deep dive on George Gershwin. Yes. Oh, that's like my, uh, so the, I did a trio record, I think in 2016, mm -hmm. uh, called Preludes the Music of George Gershwin. And I really, with that, I just was here and practicing and I was looking at um, one of the things that I'd had on my bucket list of things to check out was, of course, Porgy and Bess, the the opera that, that George Gershwin wrote. And uh, I bought the full score and I started going through it. And it is epic in in scale, but also in how familiar it is and how many pieces we know. But one of the things that happens a lot in jazz is we say, oh, you should uh, consult the originals to make sure you know the, the source material. And the source material for those pieces is so different from how we often hear them. Because just like in other jazz pieces, people come up with their own interpretations and you know, summertime, the original compared to how you might hear another singer or piano player do summertime. It's pretty, there's a vast array of different ways people do these, these pieces. And by the end of kind of getting through it, I was also interested in hearing, well, what about his early music? What about the stuff that he did without, with Ira Gershwin, but with other lyricists? What about his instrumental music? You know, what about Rhapsody in Blue? What about these instrumental preludes? And by the time I was done, just kind of going through it and I had, uh, like 20 songs I wanted to play. And so I just put on a concert at Gig Space with uh, a trio of two great local musicians, uh, John Geggy and Michelle Delage. And, um, and then I ended up doing, I think, a Southminster concert with it. And at that concert, Brian Brown uh, was attending, you know, Brian Brown, great Ottawa uh, pianist, kind of a hero to many of us here. And he came up to me and he told me I, I should record it. And he said it in a way that was like, you should just go, re go record it. Cause he knew that it would just disappear if I didn't. And it was just a fun project. And so I haven't really put that kind of stock in my own arranging to just all of a sudden say, okay, well this is worth making a record out of now. I just, I just thought like, Oh, here's some fun music I'm playing, you know? And um, so I did kind of a budget thing where we did it kind of live off the floor at gig space just with nobody there we spread out so we could isolate a little bit um but i still quite like that record i actually really enjoy how john and michelle have, uh, what they brought to these arrangements that i made and um and i if once in a while I, I will break out one of those arrangements it's it's not like it's uh, retired completely from my catalog and uh, I, I think i squeezed two originals on there too just since it was my first real trio record I wanted to make sure I got some music and it's not completely unrelated to Gershwin uh, as most jazz is in some way related to Gershwin anyway. So yeah, that's mm -hmm. how that came to be. What you're about to hear is George Gershwin's prelude number one that he wrote for solo piano and Steve Boudreaux's arrangement for trio on the album Preludes, the music of George Gershwin with Steve Boudreaux on piano, John Geggy on bass and Michel Delage on bass.
you've also put out six solo piano albums so, as well. The big chunk there, five of them, was during the 2020, there was, uh, a, there was a Canada Council initiative called the Digital Originals Grant, which was mm -hmm. so the musicians could have some things they could do through online means uh, with some support from the, basically what used to be the touring grant, I think, because nobody was able to travel. Mm -hmm. So they used that money and kind of redistributed it to artists working from home. And I pitched this idea that I could come up with a, about an album's worth of music every four to six weeks during the five, six months of lockdown from March through November. And, um, and I did a test with this piano, with the various recording equipment I had, and a friend of mine who was really a wizard, uh, Phil Bova Jr., at, at, at making perhaps less than ideal recordings sound professional and so those five the home recordings came out of that but since then the monday live streams has kind of served the same purpose right even though the quality is you know live stream quality basically what i was doing in 2020 was the this version of that but just to disc i guess um of course the idea behind the grant was that i would release it all online so you can get it directly from my website you can stream it for free or from any of the streaming services out there um it was the idea was the digital release, but I just, in the end, I wanted to have some hard copies. So I do have, I made a short run of about a hundred of each and I have about 20 left of each, I think, which is uh, not too bad. It's like people really were keen to support artists during the pandemic. And I really, you know, when I look back at it, it's quite amazing. So that's the record that Peter was talking about with one of his songs on it is I really wanted to play all kinds of stuff. And I played one of Peter's pieces. I played some other Ottawa composers things as well as, just whatever came to me that's that was the whole idea was to just keep exploring and keep growing artistically in a time where you felt a little bit of panic so yeah so during the pandemic you guys developed this very positive habit of playing together and then steve you've, you've been doing your live streams are there other positive habits either of you have had in your you know just for mental or physical health that you've continued <laughs> you want to go first I think you should. I should go first. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, I don't want to get too much into all the like, you know, this world of like self-help uh, books and podcasts and all that. But I did recently discover Gretchen Rubin. I don't know if you know her. She's a happiness project oh, yeah. and, and just a really extremely organized and intelligent, uh, you know, like person at life, you know, she seems to have everything into mm -hmm. like how to organize your belongings, how to like organize your time and things like that. And um, I think, you know, when you spend a lot of time on your own in the practice room, we think about those things. There's also like Noah Kagiyama who does the, um, the, the psychology of performance. Uh, he has a whole bunch of, mm -hmm. he has a podcast about that. It's kind of similar things as we have to think a little bit about not just the notes that we're playing, but about how we do everything else in our lives. And I think, for me, uh, you know, I'm in my, you know, mid forties now, I have to start thinking about like my diet. I have to think about some physical exercise things. Cause I really, you know, I, I feel like I've stopped, I, I can't consume any alcohol at all anymore. So I, it's not a, like I'm quit. I, I never really had that much, but you know, on a gig, you have a beer after the gig or something. I found if I had one beer after the gig at Minotaur, my Tuesday morning, I just feel sluggish and, uh, and it didn't used to be that way. So, but like, okay, well, if I want to have a more productive day, I have to think about those kinds of things. And it's, uh, it affects 
affects the music just because everything you do in life affects everything else you do. So I'd say the biggest, the biggest change for me has been structuring my schedule in a way that I can feel like I'm working, I have some downtime, and I can kind of take care of the important things in my personal life as well without just being uh, working all the time. Like Work-life balance, that's the big one. So. Yeah, for my part, like a whole lot of changes have happened in the last couple of years. I mean, my experience over the last couple of years has included not just, you know, the, the pandemic that we all went through, but sort of other transitions or changes in life. So, uh, you know, my son started going to university outside of Ottawa, so I became an empty nester. And with respect to work, uh, all of us who worked at the Ottawa Citizen, we left the newsroom for to become remote workers and we never looked back we we are not going back to the newsroom so I work from home so uh, if, if we're talking about the work-life balance well it's just sort of one big long blur kind of for me almost like every waking moment until like it's dinner time and then we get to have dinner and then probably we watch tv or something like that and that that's kind of it it, it kind of feels balanced to me I mean what I can Say though, now with respect to kind of pandemic lessons, probably have a greater sense. And this also comes from having just turned 60 years old and, and reflecting on things like legacy or, you know, what really matters. I have a greater sense of probably what I'd like to do musically in terms of mm. people I want to play with, music I want to make and places I want to play. So I endeavor more to make that happen. And what you've made me think about lastly is just the fact that I haven't written any music for a couple of months, but just all of a sudden in the last couple of weeks, sorry, in the last couple of days, like new music is kind of knocking on the door as I sit at the <laughs> piano and, and I'm starting to compose again. Uh, so that, that's exciting. And, and just the, the feeling of having something that, that wants to be completed is, is really you know, something for me to savor, and then I'm going to feel even better once I have it, and I can bring it to Steve and say, hey, let's let's play this. Yeah, I'm, I've got a, I've blocked out some time to do some writing, because I've got ideas that are incomplete, and I just need the time, you know, and that's, I've actually put it in my schedule, I was like, this time is for that, and uh, we'll see, we'll see if it comes to anything or not, but, you know, I remember Fred Hirsch, he did a retreat one year, where he went to do a composing retreat for a week, and he after like three days, he's like, I'm not writing anything. This isn't working. They're like, don't worry. The retreat is still doing what it meant to do. And he's, he said, as soon as he went home, he like unloaded compositions for like another week. It was the retreat just kind of set the, like set the stage for the music to happen. So even if you don't actually do, I'm going to compose on Monday and then you don't compose on Monday. It's like just that getting the, your sight set to get started. It's like, yeah, we're starting down the right path here, so things will things will start moving. So I'm I'm excited for that kind of stuff too, going in a new creative upswing, I guess. <laughs> yes, that's that's where I feel yeah. like that's where I am at this point in time, is there there could be an, another creative surge. I'm I'm, I'm really pretty pumped. Up. Exciting. Just a couple of questions. one question for each of you. Steve, I was curious as an educator how do you encourage creativity in your in your students? I mean, you're teaching people across genres. Yeah, that's a good question because I do really value that. And I, I think the danger that we often have as music educators is imbuing too much of our own 
taste onto students. And in jazz, especially, that's a big thing that happens. I remember, I remember meeting a pianist from Israel when I was in Boston who sounded exactly like me. And I was like, wow, this guy couldn't be, you know, like, wow, he's from across the world and he sounds so much like me. And when I met him, it was like, we actually had the same teacher for four years. And so I was like, oh, so that, that's how much of our education is in our playing, that, that we both, that even though we're from different backgrounds, we have this similar thing. So, um, but by the end of our two years in Boston, we sounded like completely different people. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so I was like, okay, so what we did there were the basics. And then we went off to find our own creative paths. So I try to use some of those lessons. And those lessons include things like bringing in the music you're listening to, and we work on that instead of the music I assign to you. Lots of ear stuff, lots of just what do you, you know, what do you hear? What, how can we pursue those things that your ears are leaning towards as opposed to any kind of fixed thing? So I, I don't really know. That's kind of a very vague way of looking at it. But the neat thing is everybody's different. And I do find that even though I push certain things on people like basic skills, most people do benefit from being told to go and find their own way in a way that then encourages them it automatically kind of you're looking at people becoming more in touch with that side of themselves just by giving them permission to. Right? I don't know if that's a good complete answer or not, but <laughs> that, that's okay. beautifully okay. expressed. I love that. And Peter, I was thinking, you know, you have written, of course, lots of restaurant reviews and also album reviews mm. of jazz colleagues. And what intimidates me about that is you have to have this incredibly broad knowledge and also way to talk about you know niches and comparisons you know do is that does that come easily to you i've been doing it for so long that i i guess <laughs> i i just have to kind of battle inertia to start writing all of this stuff mm. and and it, it, i enjoy doing it so it's uh, once you just get started and and i write words the way that i write music which is i just started the beginning and go to the end which uh, i don't think everyone does necessarily I guess all, the short answer is when you've done it as long as I have, you, you you can kind of just do it. I'm not saying that I can do it well, but it's just, yeah, you know, to. I'm not intimidated <laughs> by, by it. And, and I probably have a certain number of go-to things and stuff like that. I mean, okay, it's it's just repetitions and iterations, I think, when it comes to, to writing. Like 10,000 hours of, uh, of writing. At, yeah, <laughs> thousands of thousands, exactly. thousands of hours, yeah. Well, thanks to both of you. It's been a really uh, thrilling and, and interesting uh, episode to put together. Do you have plans to put together maybe another album? Oh, it's a, we're too early in that create upswing to say that, but um, we're going to keep playing together for sure because, mm-hmm. you know, the last couple shows have been some of the best ones we've done. And um, at the very least, you know, we do, you know, jazz musicians, we need to have like sessions to keep our you know, to keep ourselves honest, to play with everybody. And so we're going to, you know, be sessioning and trying out tunes together and as well as playing with other people too. So I think it really depends on what uh, unfolds in the next couple of years and and what other projects I think. Ideally, we want to play with lots of different people, but also you want to have something familiar to, to do when you know, oh, this would go great with this situation. So, you know, maybe another backyard concert next summer uh, or um, see what, see what comes and then if all of a sudden we have 12 tunes that go really well maybe it's worth recording it again but we'll see we'll cross that bridge a little bit later <laughs> i mean what yeah. what i can say to this very quickly is that like once you turn off the webcam leia or you yeah. know the once once we're not recording anymore i'm going to show 
see yeah. what I kind of got <laughs> exactly. in the works and say, what do you think? Or where should yeah, we'll do have a little session, right? We'll, we'll, we'll do that. And yeah. whether that results in an album in any short amount of time, probably not, but down the road, maybe. Yeah. A couple of years. So it's a slow process, but um, this is probably my favorite part of it too, is the, is the creation at the beginning is like really getting the ball rolling. So it's good to be back yeah. in that stage again. Wonderful. Well, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please check out my catalog of episodes for many other fantastic jazz pianists and jazz performers and composers, as well as improvisers in different styles. There's such a fascinating variety to life and music, and this series features wonderful musicians worldwide with in-depth conversations and great music with over 100 episodes to explore. Many episodes feature guests playing music spontaneously as part of the episode or sharing performances and albums. I hope that the inspiration and connection found in a meaningful creative life, the challenges faced, and the stories from such a diversity of artists will draw you into this weekly series with many topics that will resonate with all listeners. Please share your favorite episodes with your friends and do consider supporting this independent podcast. The link is in the description. Have a great week.